Hello and welcome to the Inspired Equity podcast. My name is Nina Pudera and I am here with my co-host, business partner and husband, Richard. We are the founders of Inspired Equity, the London-based investment business that specialises in property acquisitions and developments. Between us, we are world record holders, international property investors, prolific networkers, speakers and coaches. On each show, we will be discussing all aspects of successful property investing, covering everything from simple buy-to-let properties to multi-million pound developments. We will be interviewing industry leaders and hosting live Q&As with expert panels and keeping you up to date with the ever-changing and exciting world of property. We first met Frank in November 19 and we were absolutely blown away by him. So we are so pleased to bring him to you this evening. Um, he's known by the Wall Street Journal as the real estate of rock star. Uh, real, sorry, real estate rock star. Frank builds beautiful oceanfront homes, which average around 14 million. However, the most expensive was 50 million, which broke records at the time. He's, he's, he really is the PR king. He sure knows how to do a launch, whether it be abseiling off a helicopter onto the rooftop of his latest mansion or driving on a motorbike through fire for, the late, for his latest book launch. He's a seven times best-selling author, actor, and is a philanthrocapitalist. As he transfers the proceeds of his beautiful oceanfront homes into his Caring House Foundation, where he built, where so far he's built 29 home villages in the in some of for some of the poorest people in the Western Hemisphere, in Haiti. In Haiti. He's also raised an incredible amount of money for this wonderful foundation by being an ultra marathon runner. And just to put that into perspective, the ultra marathon runner is across Death Valley which is 135 miles across a 48 hour period. And Frank has completed it seven times. So I think you'll agree with me. He is a super impressive character. And thank you so much for joining us this evening, Frank. Welcome. You know, when, when I was watching your videos promoting your event, the first thing that came to mind was I'm going to hire you as a voiceover specialist. <laughs> really? <laughs> Why did you read my biography or talk about what I've done? I, I would like to have you introduce me everywhere I go because your voice is so soothing and, and the way you deliver it is perfect. So I'm, I'm excited to answer your questions and I'm excited to be here with your, with your IMN members. You know, I, I looked up the definition of IMN, Intelligent Millionaires Network, and I know that everybody on this, this program tonight is intelligent. There's no such thing as an unintelligent millionaire, especially if you're networking. So I am coming to you from Florida today. What you see behind me and around me toward the end is I'm gonna spin my camera around. I'm gonna show you, I'm in a treehouse. I work from an oceanfront treehouse. So right over the backside of my screen is the Atlantic Ocean that's raging today because there's 25 mile an hour winds and the waves are 10 feet tall. But at this desk in my treehouse is where all the magic happens. It's where I design all the houses that, that Nina just referenced. Uh, I've worked in this office here for 20 years. I'm 25 feet up above sea level in these sea grape trees where I wrote all seven of my books and where I'm excited to spend some time with you all tonight. Thank you so much, Frank. Can you, would you mind sharing us with us just a snippet of your backstory and what first got you into property? 
I'm, I'm just a corn-fed country boy from Indiana, a small town called Carmel, Indiana. Not Carmel, that's in California, that's the fancy town. This was Carmel, Indiana. I'm the oldest of six. My father was a banker, my mother uh, was a school teacher. I have four sisters and a brother. I had a difficult childhood, not because I was provided with a difficult childhood, it's that I made my childhood difficult on myself where I was in juvenile detention in the United States. That's the equivalent of prison before you're 18. I was locked up seven times for just being a, a juvenile delinquent. I went to four high schools in four years. Um, and it wasn't because my father was in the military, it's because I was asked to leave one school after the next. I finally graduated from high school with a 1.8 grade point average, which isn't very good. Matter of fact, it was so low that I couldn't get into even a community college. So I took a, a one-way plane ticket with a $50 bill and a duffel bag, and I landed in Palm Beach from a farm. I moved from a farm in Indiana to Palm Beach, Florida when I was 18, and it was like a, a, a child in a candy store. I mean, really, it was, it was during this programming. There was a program on TV called Lifestyles, the Rich and Famous, and Robin Leach had a voice kind of like yours, only a male version of it. And, uh, and man, watching people live the lifestyle of the rich and famous is what I wanted. But how was I going to get that? You know, I, I had no education. I had no network. I had no friends. I had no money. Uh, and I, I was a maintenance worker on a golf course. I was digging holes with a shovel, um, you know, to put white sand in it, digging sand traps on a golf course. But I was around affluence, Nina. I was around people who were living that lifestyle of the rich and famous so I went from the maintenance worker on a golf course to the maintenance worker on a tennis, the tennis courts. Same people play golf in the morning, play tennis in the afternoon. Never seemed like they worked. And I was very curious, how did they get to live that life? I became a tennis pro, a teaching tennis pro. I taught people I had a better forehand and a backhand. I was pretty good at it. And I was, again, around people who could afford to pay me $50 an hour to play tennis at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Didn't have to work. So I finally got up the courage to ask my tennis students, how did you get here? How did you, how did you, like you have a beautiful mansion that you just left and closed the door behind you to come take a lesson from me. You drove over in your Ferrari or Mercedes. You have a beautiful wife or a handsome husband. You have children, you have a yacht. You had the American dream. And I was very curious, how did they get that? And the answer I got more often than not, Nina, was they weren't born real estate investors, but they were you know, doctors and inventors and lawyers, but they took their discretionary money left over after paying bills and paying taxes, and they invested it in real estate. And, and I heard, when, when I heard that story the first time, I was kind of fascinated. I was entertained. But over a two-year span of me asking that questions of my tennis students in very affluent communities, I chose to teach in communities that were very affluent, very wealthy, and very nice houses. Uh, I realized, well, that's the answer. Real estate is the answer. My nine to five was being a tennis student. My cubicle, if you will, was on the tennis court. But I wanted to be a real estate investor. And so learning one tennis student at a time over a two-year span, I earned my master's in entrepreneurship and my PhD in real estate. And in 19, matter of fact, it was 35, this is going to date me, it was 30, yes, I started my company when I was four, <laughs> but, but 35 years ago today, May 19th, 1986, I started my real estate investment company. I, I just had a memory come up. So, and I bought a, a fixer-upper, a $50,000, US $50,000 crack house in a bad part of town, flipped it and made seven grand. And I did, so, so one of the things I would tell people is, is I became an expert at the craft of real estate. Over a five-year span, I did not 
buy or sell a house worth more than $100,000. But I became very good at the craft of real estate. So my margins went from $7,000 per house on average, that first house, all the way to $25,000. And I felt comfortable after five years of not doing a house worth more than 100 grand to jump up to the next level. And I jumped from 100,000 to 2.2 million, a spec house, so building a house without a buyer in mind. And since then, we've done 44 oceanfront projects on speculation, some land deals that I just flipped, but for the most part, I build or renovate houses uh, with an average selling price of over $14 million, again, on spec. So I have no partners other than the bank, my wife and the IRS, those are my only partners. Uh, and I, but I don't build for other people. Like I wouldn't build for you and Richard. I, like Van Gogh, Renoir, Monet, I build three-dimensional art and I put a for sale sign in the lot when it's finished. I don't, I'm not a commissioned artist. I create the art that I think would be valuable. And then I, I sell that for that average selling price around 14 million. And like you said, the most expensive one we did was over $50 million. It had like 12 bedrooms, 18 bathrooms and a 22 car garage. So that's my, my backstory. I am, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't hear you. Uh, Richard, I am not hearing Nina. There we okay, go. Okay, apologies about that, apologies. Um, right, that is, is super impressive. And I, lo I love how you learn on the, on the ground from, and, and, and are so, um, and, and how it's, it's, I love how you learn from all the people and who, it's who you surround yourself by. So it's phenomenal. Um, and you mentioned about how you started with the crack house and that was a $54,000. And then it was around, I understand, for about five years, you were doing $100,000 projects. And then you took the big leap from $100,000 right up to $2 million. And I think most people would see that as a massive jump. Can you can you share with us what it was like to, to make that jump from from those one hundred thousand dollar homes up to the two million? Yeah. So if I do a postmortem of my career and I look back and I, I think maybe maybe that would have been perceived as a big jump. But at the time, you know, having spent the five years to be really good at the craft of real estate, to me, it was a matter of adding one zero to the acquisition price. So I was buying houses for 75 grand and flipping them for 100. This house I bought for 750,000. I put about 300,000 in it and I sold it for 2 million. So the difference between 750,000 and 75,000 is just one zero. Because I had built the confidence in my ability to renovate and restore crack houses. And by the way, I, I hate using that word. I was really happy and, and very proud of providing the American dream to people who realized American dream was not meant to be rented. It was meant to be owned. And I always made my houses the nicest on the block. Hence the definition of a real estate artist. So I am very um, proud of the fact that I, I, I never, I built my reputation before I built my bottom line. So, so, so you sacrifice bottom line, you sacrifice margin to increase your, your reputation. And I became pretty well you know, known at built, selling houses in neighborhoods for 103% of retail uh, and creating these margins that were you know, making 25 grand on a $100,000 house. I thought, why can't I do that on the, on the ocean front? What, what's the difference other than that one zero? The other thing that I realized, and this is post-mortem, this is, this is, I didn't realize it in a moment, but for those of you who want to make the jump, this is a fact. 
the, the first time homebuyer and the ultra wealthy have been around since the Roman era. They have been around since before Christ. And so that segment of the marketplace, the real estate marketplace, is relatively recession proof. People will always need that first time home buyer home, that first time home buyer home because they're leaving a rental situation wanting to own a home. And the ultra wealthy is a class that's been around forever and ever and ever. And they will appreciate of you know this artistry that we create on, on a sundridge can canvas known as the Atlantic Ocean. So that 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 knowledge now that that those two classes are places that you can make really good money. It's the segment in between that is, I find, have found through six different real estate cycles that I've been through in my career, you know, the ups and downs of real estate cycles, that those are more susceptible to the economic fluctuations of those cycles, whereas the ultra wealthy seem to be a little more immune and the entry level seems to be a little bit more immune. So the biggest risk I ever took was really that $50,000 crack house because I left a $100,000 a year job teaching tenants. I was doing very well at 21 years old, making, you know, hundred grand a year teaching tennis. I left that, took the big risk to build, to buy that $50,000 crack house. So to jump up to 2 million and from two, we went to four, then to six. There's a bunch of them in between. We went to, from there to 15, then I did a 20, we did a 30, then I did a 50 and a bunch of them, you know, like I said, in, be, in between. So I encourage people, you know what, it, 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 there's nothing, there's nothing more gratifying than exercising your risk tolerance like a muscle, you know, extra, exercising your threshold for taking a risk like a muscle. And, and that's what I've done. And eventually it becomes stronger and able to withstand greater pressure. So the fear isn't the same as it was back then. I have so much knowledge in the field that I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of this number of zeros. And I would encourage other people um, to, to, to eventually get to that point, not to be afraid to add a zero to your your, that's what you actually IMN is all about getting to your first million, your first 10 million, your first hundred million. Also is ours one zero. That's the only difference there. That's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, and you also should talk about um, the, the philosophy and your, and your approach to, um, sorry, the approach you should take to your business where you should be, no matter what industry you're in, you should be the absolute artist of it. Can you elaborate a little bit more there? This is so important. And it also, you know, I think passion is a little bit overrated. I want people watching, and, and I have a new book coming out in this summer that's called Aspire. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to focus on your purpose. I can have a passion for chocolate or you know, purple hair, um, but it's not gonna make me money. What is my purpose? Even a passion for chocolate isn't good for me. What is my purpose? And my purpose, the purpose God gave me, I'm a Christian, but the purpose God gave me is to be a real estate artist and to take, like I always admired two-dimensional artists. I always wanted to be able to paint or sculpt or sing or play an instrument, but that wasn't the gift I was given. And if I thought, if I could create three-dimensional art that people could live in, and I, was, I could take myself back to the days of Van Gogh or Renoir or Monet or Michelangelo and think about if they walked into a paint store, are they gonna buy the least expensive paint? Are they gonna buy the cheapest paintbrush? Are they gonna cut corners and buy the cheap, a cheap palette? No they're going to take this, this otherworldly creative approach to their craft. Why shouldn't real estate be approached that way? It's a business and I'm a businessman first and an artist a distant second, but be able to, it's very important that we as a species be able to toggle back and forth between right brain activity, which is the creative side of the brain and left brain activity, which is the analytical and statistical and business side of the brain. Many of you are listening to that are going to say, Oh, well, I'm, I've always been a creative 
I don't have the business sense. My partner has that. Or I'm, I'm the number cruncher. I'm not a creative. Stop saying that. And certainly stop saying that to your children because that's what I was taught. My father was a banker. My grandfather was a banker. I was left brain dominant my entire life. And I, when I got to Florida, it took me 10 years to awaken the synapses in the right side of the brain where I wanted to be a creative. And if you look at the people that you admire the most in your life, let's pick Elon Musk out of the air. You may not admire him, but you have to admire what he does. Those successful people can toggle back and forth in nanoseconds between right brain. This is a creative idea. I want to take SpaceX and I want to launch it up into the sky and have it land back right on the pad that it launched from. And left brain, is this, am I going to be able to take payload up there and make money to drop off when I'm up in the outer space in my SpaceX? That's exactly what I do with my real estate. Is I, I might not be able to toggle back and forth in nanoseconds, but it's milliseconds. And, and that part allows you to play the part of an artist in, in, in real estate. And it doesn't matter the price of the property. You know, so for me, a $50,000 house, I took the same artistic approach as I did that $50 million property. Fantastic. It actually brings me on to the next question. So as property developers and, and investors, we're, you know, we're encouraged to make our properties stand out and be different to the competition. And, and you buy, market and sell extremely high-end, beautiful homes like no other, I know. Can you share with us how and why you do it and what makes you stand out from the crowd? Well, let's, let's help the people watching this stand out from the crowd, okay? Because this is something I do and they can do very simply. Remember, I'm a 1.8 grade point average. I'm a simpleton. I'm a very linear thinker. I'm not a genius. I'm not brilliant. I just take practical common sense. If you're able to heighten the experience your buyers have with their five senses, sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste, you heighten the experience the buyer has with those five senses to the state of subliminal euphoria, to the state of intoxication, you will move your buyer from need to desire. I need a house. I need to put a roof over my family's head. There's a lot of competition out there. Let me go look and see what I can find. I desire Frank McKinney's. It's because I've paid hyper attention to those five senses when I'm designing and of course showing and selling the property. So, you know, when, when that's something that that when you lay out a set of plans or you're just going buying a piece of property in wherever country you're from, think about the, the experience your buyer is going to have when they not just walk in the front door, when they drive up the driveway before they even get to the front door and try to touch in your mind and in your design and in your renovations or your building from the ground up, the five senses. And, and there are rooms that you want to take chances in. Um, and I advocate that, most people that buy houses are going to be excited by the three money rooms, master bedroom, the master bathroom, and the kitchen. And if I were to ask you to assign a gender to those rooms, nine out of 10 people would say, though, those are female rooms. And they're right. Those are female dominant rooms. So if you're not a creative or you're just starting to wake in the right side of the brain, you have to get in touch with your X chromosome. Even if you're a guy, you have to get in touch with that X chromosome to make sure that you're designing those three rooms to appeal to what, you know, there's a lot of couples that buy houses. And that is the first place you've got to take some chances. The last house I built in the kitchen, we put a 11,000 year old lava from France as countertops. 
lava had erupted from a volcano in France. We bought it, it was azure blue, as blue as the ocean, and put it on these beautiful countertops. By the way, you can go to my website, you'll put up a link, or we'll, we'll talk about that where they can see the stuff. And, and in like the master bedroom had, had a, it was, I built bedrooms of 4,000 square feet, you know, massive master bedrooms. Our master bathrooms, my God, some of the bathtubs and the, and the, I put uh, countertops in the bathrooms that were made out of sea glass that was harvested from the ocean. So those, those are the kind of things that, that create the substance behind the flash. And then the flash is the marketing. And you will, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later. I don't want to jump into that now, but, but, but you can overpay, you can overimprove, but you can make up for those two sins by being able to market like nobody else. And that's one thing that I know we do really well is draw attention to the fact that we have a house that only 50,000 people out of a worldwide population of 8 billion can afford. I have to drive traffic, qualified traffic to a house that's being built on speculation that every day it doesn't sell. I'm burning through $10,000 in interest. You know, so I have to turn these things over or else I I'm eating out of a dumpster. That, that forces me to set my properties apart, both in terms of substance and then flash. Because remember the flash part, the, the grand unveilings and theatrical stuff that we do, that doesn't come with the house. And if I can't back that up with substance, with, with those three money rooms and just the beauty, the opulence and the grandeur of our houses, then I am eating out of a dumpster. Fabulous. And I know, as you, I know you've touched on it briefly, but it, the, the importance of, as you mentioned earlier, when people think of the opulence and think of those type of properties, they want to think of Frank McKinney. So I, I know you are the king of PR and, 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 and your posts and, and your social media platforms are phenomenal. What, what importance would you put on personal branding? This is so important because unless you're in a business that you have no competition and, and there's so much competition in our business, personal branding is critical. And maybe because I didn't have the education, you know, to fall back on that I felt like I needed to, and this is the definition of personal branding. So write this down. Personal branding is the art of amplifying your essence to the point where your customers, either current or future, become subliminally intoxicated with you first then your product or service. One more time, personal branding is the art of amplifying your essence, what sets you apart to the point where your customers, either the ones you have now, the ones you want to get, become subliminally, meaning subconsciously, intoxicated with you first, then your product or service. Most people make the mistake of leading with product or service. Product or service does not speak for itself. They cannot, there's no mouthpiece on your home. You have to be the one. So if you were in an art gallery and you were walking through and Van Gogh and Renoir, Monet and Michelangelo was there, wouldn't you want to hear from them? Like what inspired you to build, to paint these beautiful paintings? I don't want to hear from an art dealer. I want to hear from the artist himself who was inspired to create the lava countertops or the jellyfish sphere that we put into the last house or the massive master bedrooms. That, that part of personal branding you, you have, that's, that's not even the flash necessarily, Nina. That's a necessity. You might not want to jump out of a helicopter or jump a motorcycle over a house and the stuff that we've done, but there's a method to that madness. So when we do our grand unveilings, they're very theatrical. They belong on Broadway or Las, in Las Vegas. But the method to the madness is, is, is I want to drive 
qualified buyers, multi-million dollar real estate brokers, media, government officials, and I think that's, yeah, that's it. That, 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 those four class of people, I, I have come to mind grand unveilings. And the conversation will go something like this. Let's say the grand unveiling's on a Friday. There's a broker there. You got to see this guy. He's coming out of a helicopter. I don't know. It's a little bit much. It, it really belongs on a backstage of Las Vegas. It's, I don't know if he has to do all that stuff. But, oh, my God, you got to see this house. Mission accomplished. Because, as I said, I do not come with the house, the, the helicopter, the motorcycle, all the stuff. That is irrelevant. The true show starts when you walk in the front door of that house. And, and because of that conversation that took place on a Friday at one of our grand unveilings, people are often sleeping in my house as new owners on the following Tuesday. So three or four days later, no inspections, no nothing. So that just shows you the power of personal branding and, and the method to the madness. But a lot of folks will say, well, it's unnecessary, it's expensive, it's egotistical, it's narcissistic. If there wasn't a, a plan behind it, they would be true. Uh, that would be true. But, but when, and I would do this, you know, with our $100,000 houses. I might not do a helicopter thing or all that, but I might, I might have a paint gorilla jumping up and down out in front of the street, and I might put fireworks on the, on the, on the roof. Uh, you know, I might put sparkly little banners on the, on the face of the house to draw attention to the fact that it's there. Because my whole objective is to move you from need to desire in a relatively short period of time, because folks, well, here's what happens when you're, when you're marketing a piece of property. You're competing, of course, with a lot of folks. You're, you're also competing with what I refer to as the impulse window. So let's say you finished a property and you've done everything. You've touched the five senses to the state that subliminal euphoria. You've done a great job as a real estate artist and you, you open your property. You're also opening the impulse window. You want people to buy on impulse. Nina does not need another pair of shoes, but when she goes to the mall and sees a beautiful pair of shoes, she's going to buy them because she felt impulsive to do so. Real estate is no different. You get somebody to act on impulse so that they love your house on a Friday and are sleeping there on a Tuesday. You've accomplished the successfully accomplished developing your personal brand. And remember what I said at the beginning, sacrifice some of the bottom line at the beginning to build that personal brand, to build that reputation. Fantastic. What, what would you say are your, your three greatest skills? Um, and also what, what importance would you put on creating the right environment to grow those skills and grow as a person? I think, I think my great, oh boy, that's so, I, 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 I know you offered to send questions over in advance. I never like to do them, so I'm glad we didn't. The three greatest skills, I guess, if we're sticking with property or just life? Life in general. Life. Okay, good. So I would, I would think that it would be um, creating my own reality. I, I do live, there's a reason I work from a treehouse. Like I don't want negativity to permeate any part of my cellular structure. I want to be around a very positive environment. So I've created my own reality. Um, I think risk, being a risk not working through the fear associated with taking a risk. And we'll talk about how to do that in a second. And the third is I'm, I'm really grateful that I am sensitive to and aware of the poor, the marginalized, the invisible, the people that 
society kind of cast off as as rejects you know in in the in the both new and old testament they would be the lepers of society so our, our caring house project foundation builds self-sufficient villages in haiti where we've built 29 villages in the last 18 years not for profit we do this through a non a 501c3 those three things creating my own reality not being afraid to take a risk and caring for the world's poor Fantastic. And just touching on what you said there about creating your own reality. I heard you in an interview recently say about um, somebody asked you what was the way forward out of um, COVID um, for the world. And I loved what you said about how people should turn off their TVs and not watch the news. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, on, on your philosophy on that? Because I'm a great believer in the world gets consumed with far too much negativity um, and the media. What's, it's where you choose to put your energy. So for a while, we all chose to put our energy toward that television set. COVID to me stands for come out very inspired and determined. Come out very inspired and determined. That, that's not some just platitude. It's, it's how I looked at it. I looked at it as an opportunity. I have journals in my, my, my office up here. I journal every day or every other day. I chose to go back and reread old journals to see how my mind was, you know, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. I was feeding my mind while I was sitting at home in this treehouse. So, you know, that, that the creation of your reality, one of the reasons that I chose to, this is like I've written, this is my seventh book. This is Aspires. I don't know if you can see it. It's a little shiny. Um, I've written Young Reader Fantasy, Christian Romance, Spirituality, Real Estate, Philosophy, and uh, two real estate books. And now this is my first mindset book. The, the subtitle of the book is How to Create Your Reality and Alter Your DNA. Because I kind of was getting a little scared and even, well, tired and then scared of people allowing outside forces to create reality for them. Instead of being bold enough to create our own realities. And, and, and part of that process is learning how to alter your DNA. There's a science behind it called epigenetics, which is the actual altering of your physical DNA and how the mind can go about doing that. Because if, if you watch the movie Rocket Man, which was the, sh the story of Elton John's life when he was Reginald Dwight, and there was a line in that movie that stuck with me. And it's, if it wasn't used, I would have made it the subtitle to my book. Kill the person you were born to be, to become the person you want to be. Kill the person you were born. I was born to be a banker. I did not want to be a banker. I wanted to be a real estate artist. I wanted to do these things and create this artistry. And, and you know, I, I wanted to run the toughest foot race in the world. I wanted to run a charity in, in Haiti. And I, want, I wanted to be an author when I couldn't even get out of high school. So, you know, that, that part of knowing that you, the people watching this, can can should want to create your own reality you know take the dna parts of the dna that you don't prefer that you want to change and answer the simple question what legacy do you aspire to leave behind you don't have to answer right now it's something you want to think about though what legacy do you aspire to leave behind and and that the answer can come can the answer can be assisted by answering this prior question who do you aspire to emulate who is it that you look up to that you'd want to put your feet in their footprints if you're walking on a beach that you could sample some of their dna not copy them but sample some of their dna so that you could answer the second question what legacy do i aspire to to to, to leave behind because 
Nina, the, the most profound thing I learned through writing this book was motivation does not last. Motivation as a species, we are not wired to stay motivated. I can't stop beating yourself up over the fact that you cannot stay motivated. So I realized, you know, even though I've done a lot of stuff in my life, I, I really have a tough time staying motivated. There's a reason there's a multi-billion dollar industry out there built around motivation because they realize it doesn't last. Inspiration. So motivation, if, if Nina and I motivated you today, we failed because you will go home tonight, get in the shower, and the motivation will wash off with the soap. It goes down the drain with the soap at night. Read a motivational quote or see some of the motivation on Facebook. It's over before you even turn off your computer. Inspiration. So inspiration, you read an inspirational book, you watch an inspirational movie, that inspiration will last, but about as long as a bad sunburn, maybe two weeks, and then it's gone. What do you aspire to leave behind? What legacy? What do you aspire to be doing a year from now that you're not doing now? You see, it's aspiration. That's why Kyle, that's why I titled the book Aspire, not inspire or motivate. Aspiration changed my DNA. Aspiration sticks with you. It's like, it's so sacred. It's like a Fabergé egg. It just, it's, it, it, you put it on this shelf. Like I aspire to be a real estate artist. And it took me 20 years, but I became one. I aspired to run that foot race you referenced, the toughest foot race in the world, according to National Geographic. It took me a long time, but I finished that race seven times. I aspired to write books when I wasn't educated, and I've written seven and six genres. I aspired to run a charity in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and I aspired to have a family. I've been married to my wife for 30 years, and I have a 22-year-old daughter. Those aspirations, when you, when you finish and you hit off on your computer, that's what I hope sticks with you. Now, the you know, risk and all the things that are going to take for you to attain those aspirational endeavors, they're not goals, they're endeavors, they're, they're sacred. That part is something that I, I hope you take with you today, tonight. It's amazing. Thank you so much. The, you mentioned I, all of the things there that, that you do, and you have so many different hats. And I know that you've hung up your hat on the property developing now and you've done your final masterpiece. Um, you, but I know that you don't like to do too much at the same time and, and you have a really good philosophy on, on the discipline of staying focused. Can you share some of your tips on, on how you can not be distracted and stay on topic? Well, maybe for me, it's a little easier because of my lack of education, but, but I believe in carving one's niche a little deeper and a little wider than most. Like I, I don't, I put 3000 miles a year on my car because all my projects are within 10 miles of my house. Like I, I'm not drawn to go to Beverly Hills or Bel Air or Malibu or the South of France or the Italian Riviera where there's also very expensive houses. I want to be an expert at my craft right in my backyard. You know, so, so, you know, for me to deviate and, and I don't buy and hold it's, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not my expertise. You know, so, so for me to, to buy, add value and sell, be it a $100,000 house or a $50 million house, the approach was pretty much the same. Again, it was just adding one zero. So here's the, here's the visual I'd like to give you. Um, if, you if you imagine the hands on a clock 
you've got three o'clock, six o'clock, nine, forget the ones in between, just go three, six, nine, 12. So you start an endeavor, you start something you, you aspire to, let's say, at, at, at 12 o'clock, you get excited about it. You've turned this off and you're excited about investing in real estate. And at three o'clock, you, the excitement has worn off. This could be three months from now. It could be six months from now. It could be whatever, you know, a year from now, but it's not exciting anymore. So because attention spans are so short, we jump from one, let's use real estate as an example. I'm a short sale seller. I'm a wholesaler. I'm a retailer. I'm a contractor. I build from the ground up. I'm into storage units. I, I, you know, you, you go, you could go uh, Airbnb. I mean, there's so many different ways. And if it's exciting to you to start one of those disciplines, but when the excitement wears off, you jump from one discipline to the next. Somebody's spoken at an event, you get excited about it, you go buy another course, and there you are being a short seller or a wholesaler. I call you a flea because fleas jump from one thing to the next, they never sit still. So at three o'clock, if you get bored and you have to jump to something else, look at yourself in the mirror, call yourself the flea and stop and stick with it. So you're getting past three, then you get to six o'clock. Now, six o'clock is when you've, you've gotten past the excitement, you're still with it, and now it becomes mundane. It becomes like if soap operas are supposed to be about everyday life, but if they were about everyday life, nobody would tune in because it's, everyday life's boring. It's that everyday life, it's mundane, it's showing up on a job site, which this still happens to me, and somebody took a crap in one of my toilets and there's no water there. there I have no water to the property yet, and there's crap in the toilet. And I scratch my head and I say, I, I'm still having to clean this stuff out of a toilet after 25 years of doing this. I quit. I quit. Now, I don't, at 25 years, you don't quit, but it, usually in one year, this is too hard. It's boring. It, it doesn't keep my attention anymore. I, I want to do something easier. So you, you got halfway. Remember, if you get back to 12, you finished it. You've got halfway. I call you a half-asser because you do things halfway. You get to halfway point and you quit because it's too hard. Don't be a flea. Don't be a half-asser. Continue on to 9 o'clock. Now, at 9 o'clock, you can see the finish line. You're almost there. And this doesn't happen to a lot of people, but it happens to 10 to 15% of, of folks. You become so associated with the process that you forget about the purpose. It's like the person who's gone to university and they have two credits to get before they graduate and they just don't because they got so associated with the process of going to college, so associated with the process of real estate, of buying it and renovating it. They see the finish line and they become afraid of success. There are people that are afraid, more subconsciously, of success. And I call you shoelacers. So you're not a flea. You're not a half-asser. You're a shoelacer because you actually tie your own shoelaces together right before the finish line and fall flat on your face. You do not take the last few steps necessary to cross the finish line. Doesn't happen to a lot of you, as I said, but be, be aware that you, it's not about the process. It's about the purpose. And the purpose in real estate is to sell these projects for a like people say, Frank, don't you just love this house? Wouldn't you want to live here? This is so beautiful. No, I have no emotional attachment whatsoever to my artistry. My artistry is only validated as art when it sells. Because if it doesn't sell, what am I? I'm a starving artist. And there's plenty of starving artists out there. I don't want to be one of those. So if you get past nine, you get back to 12, 
you become an executioner. And that's what you want to be. Execute on something in real estate that you, in life in general, that you've started. That's the best way for me to implement discipline. Fantastic. And on the subject of that finishing line, I've got two more questions. But my second from last question has to be about your ultra marathons. I have read your blogs. I have, I am so blown away by the level of mental strength that you must have to do that race. And can you, can you share with us um, a little bit about the race itself and what was your hardest moment and how you got through that? Yeah. I mean, this is something I could talk about for, for the entire time because it's, it's my hobby. You know, I don't collect stamps or, you know, go bowling. I am an ultra marathon runner. So uh, what that means is a typical marathon is 26.2 miles. So an ultra marathon is any race longer than a typical marathon, a traditional marathon. So to make this relatable to everybody watching, you have in your lifetime opportunities where I call the three eyes insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible things lay themselves on your heart. Incomprehensible, impossible, just insurmountable opportunity. So I learned about this race called the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which is, according to National Geographic, the toughest foot race in the world. It goes from the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere at 282 feet below sea level in July in Death Valley, California, which is the hottest place ever recorded in the history of the world. You're running on blacktop pavement from that 282, minus 282 below sea level, over three mountain ranges. So you're going from below sea level to a mile up, then you're back to sea level, then you're back to 6,000 feet, down to 2,000, you finish at 9,000. Nonstop, the pavement is over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. The ambient daytime temperature can, we saw 136 degrees one year, it averages around 120 degrees pretty much the whole day the desert does not cool down at night at least not death valley you have 48 hours to finish it's invitation only typically 25 countries are invited to fill those 100 spots there's only 100 spots that are available so when that laid itself on my heart when i had heard about this race i was actually vacationing in death valley and i was mistaken for a runner that was out just taking a little jog and they thought i was in the race so i stumbled across it literally stumbled across it and i thought okay there's other people that have done this. It seems just so otherworldly to, to, to run that far in that kind of heat. But if another human being has done it, why can't I? I'm not a gifted ultra marathoner. You have 48 hours to finish. My average finish time over those seven races is 44 hours. So I, I'm not fast. The, the, the record to finish that race is around 21 hours or 22 hours. That's a record time. So there's some guys that are Imagine being on the highway and going 50 miles an hour and somebody passes you at 100 miles an hour. That's how fast these guys are going, twice my speed. But what I learned, Nina, and my life changed. when I ran that race for the first time in 2005. And I've tried 12 times. I've failed five. I've finished seven. Um, but what I've learned is when pursuing the insurmountable, the incomprehensible, and the impossible, the elastic that is life stretches to a point where it never goes back. It doesn't go back. My mind, my, my belief in what I can accomplish has not been the same since that first race. And if you go to my website and you look at some of the houses I've built and the books that I've written and the villages we've built in Haiti since then, I, I attribute the success of those endeavors to saying yes to something that was insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible. 
because that's what typically we do. We have a chance. We have a choice. We can say yes or no. And, and that, a lot of people say, that's just crazy. Like, why would I want to do that to myself? What the discipline it takes to train for something like that. And as I get older, it becomes harder and harder. But that encouragement that I would hope to leave with you, like aspire to the impossible, the insurmountable, insurmountable and the incomprehensible. That's the only way you're going to create your own reality. That's the only way you're going to restructure your DNA. And I'm so grateful that I said yes, rather than that's too hard, that's too impossible, and and not and not pursue it. I hope I can go back one day. <laughs> wow, and I, I understand that you hadn't even run a, a. I say this, I hadn't even run a marathon. Well, I <laughs> I ran two miles yesterday for the first time in four months, and I can't walk today. So <laughs> I really need to improve my own fitness levels. But I know you spoke about how important your coach was, and how they got you through those. those uh, get you through that mindset barrier to be able to go from not even completing an a marathon to an ultra marathon runner yeah so you let's use your example you know if, if i were to ask everybody listening tonight do you think you could go run 135 miles through the death valley desert in 125 degree heat the answer is no that's insurmountable incomprehensible impossible could you go run one mile could you do one mile yeah frank i think i could do that all you need to do is do that 135 times you begin to be able to put your arms around something like that, you know? So my coach that I did hire, I hired a woman who had finished that race more times than any other woman. She's finished it 10 times. Back then she had finished it like five or six. I hired her and she got my mind right in six weeks to run a hundred mile race to qualify for bad water. My body wasn't there, but my mind was there. So you get the mind right. And in this example, the miles follow. You get the mind right and the money will follow in real estate. Yes, my body got in shape and all of that, but but I my mind my mind improved by a thousand percent. Well, my body probably improved by fifty percent, and, and so she was the one who taught me, you know, break the race up. So the race is very long. Break the race up into five or six separate races. Every checkpoint is a different race. So the checkpoint at mile seventeen, at mile forty-two, mile seventy-two, mile ninety, mile one twenty-two, and at the finish line. And that's what I would do. That's the way we approach life. Like if you want to get out there and, and do your first real estate investment deal, you're not going to start with a $10 million house. Let's just get that one done. And I don't want to hear about the second one until the one you've been that executioner. You know, you've closed the loop. You've come from 12 all the way back to 12 on that first, first property. That's how I train for the ultra marathon. Just like you, if I'm out of shape, I start with one mile and the next two days I'll do two miles and I'll build, eventually build it up to where I'll, I'll train. My, my long training runs are 70 miles or so. And I don't run the whole time, by the way. Nobody runs that run, run who races in that race runs the whole time. It, it's called, and this is another great three words for life and for business, relentless forward motion in that race. As long as I'm moving toward the finish line, if I'm running, if I'm shuffling, if I'm walking, if I'm power hiking or crawling, as long as I'm moving forward toward the finish line and not back like the other five times I, I had to quit toward my car and back toward the hotel, that relentless forward motion should carry you forward in, in the business of life. Thank you so much. My final question before I hand over to Richard to open up to the audience, um, I would love you to share a bit more about your Caring House Foundation because Richard and I were really touched by the foundation and I think lots of people need to hear about it and, and as to why you set it up. 
it's almost unfair that we talk about three things that I'm so passionate about, which is which is our, my real estate, my running, and 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 the caring house project. And I should try to pack that all into an hour because this really is the most important thing. And you saved it for last because as as a Christian, and and, and even if you're not into the you know the Bible or or if you're not a Christian or not even a real religion. There's a great life mantra that happens to be a Bible passage that is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 48. It says, to whom much is entrusted, much is required. To whom much is given, much is expected. So that's a great life mantra, right? If you're an atheist or agnostic, forget the fact it comes from the Bible. It is a great way to approach life. And so I was at a very low point in my life in the um, late 90s. I was on top of the world in real estate. We had just sold the most expensive spec house in the history of Palm Beach County. Yet my, I had no heart in my soul anymore, Nina. I was very depressed. I had all the cars in my garage and clothes in my closet and food in my pantry that I could ever imagine, but I had lost all the heart in my soul. I was very consumeristic. I was very materialistic. And I went to my mentor and I asked him, why do I feel like this? Like, I've, I'm on the top of the world right now. And I feel like, sh I'm going to say one bad word. I feel like shit. <laughs> I feel bad about myself. I don't like to curse, but I feel bad. And uh, he asked me, well, what are you doing spiritually? Oh, I go to church. And he's the one who taught me that we all have a professional highest calling. So mine is pretty obvious. It's real estate. Yours, real estate. What's your spiritual highest calling? I didn't know there was such a thing. So being the linear thinker, the simpleton that I am, I thought, okay, well, I'm providing housing to the world's most wealthy. What about the people who don't have housing? What about the poorest of the poor? What about the homeless? And so in the United States, we started in the late 90s, buying the same crack houses I was buying, but instead of renovating them, selling them for 50 grand, we rented them for a dollar a month to elderly homeless people because the elderly die on the streets. They don't last on the street. We did that for a few years, Nina. And then I realized as a businessman, I wanted to take the best of philanthropy and the best of capitalism because charity exacerbates poverty. Charity does nothing. I shouldn't say nothing. Charity does very little to solve the cycle of poverty. It's free enterprise and capitalism that solves and breaks the cycle of poverty. So taking the best of philanthropy, the best of capitalism, marrying those two together, we're now, I refer to myself and our endeavor as philanthrocapitalists. And that's what we do over in Haiti. We take, uh, are we still there? I think you're frozen. Uh, am I still there? Let me, go, let me go to the full view. Can somebody give me a thumbs up? Yes, you can hear me. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Nina, is Nina still frozen? And Nina's back. Nina's not back. She will be back. All right. So I'm going to talk through. I'm going to come back to the full screen so I can see y'all. Y'all there? Thumbs up. Good. All right. So we, we take the best of philanthropy, the best of capitalism, marry the two, philanthrocapitalism. We go over to that poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, that being Haiti. And I am not a fan of welfare mentality, nor entitlement mentality. The welfare system and the entitlement system in the United States are fine for what they're intended to do for a short period of time, but when, the, when, the, when it becomes a mentality, it becomes toxic. So we build self-sustaining villages because I am not there to take care of you after the village is completed. So I get to play. So when I, when I asked the question about my book, who do you aspire to emulate? One of the people I aspired to emulate as a child, as a young boy, 
was Robin Hood. I get to play a modern day Robin Hood. I get to sell to the rich and take the proceeds from the sale, sales and a lot of donors. We have a lot of donors that donate to our Caring House Project Foundation. And we get to go to the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and provide a self-sustaining existence to get this now since 2003, so 18 years. We've built 29 villages, housing over 12,800 children that were eating, if this was a hamburger, they were eating dirt flavored with bouillon and lemon juice. It's not meat, it's something that looks like a patty, but it's dirt flavored with lemon juice. We provided 12,800 kids with a self-sustaining existence so they, they no longer have to eat dirt. And generationally, we've impacted the family because now they have, a typical village has housing, food, a renewable food, clean drinking water, a school, a church, and a clinic, and some form of free enterprise that we leave behind so that that village can be self-sustaining. They do not have to count on a charity, an NGO, or their government to succeed. And that is something that gave my life back to me when I was ready to possibly take my life. I was so effed up at the time with all the success and all the trappings of it. I don't drink and I don't smoke. I didn't get into any of that stuff, but I, I was just so down. And now that I had found my, my, my spiritual highest calling, I mean, that really, um, that saved my life. So I hope, Anina, if you are not back, I will. I'm back. Uh, okay. Apologies. <laughs> no problem. So I think I answered that question while you were gone. And uh, I, I was able to see your viewers with their thumbs up. So uh, I just encourage you, if, if, if you do pray at night uh, or during the day at all, when you're on your knees or wherever you do your praying, if you inventory your prayer, inside that prayer is some prayer for more. You're praying for some form of more, more wealth, more love, more peace, more happiness, more joy. God wants to give you the more you're praying for. The question I have, and I'm not going to speak for God, but I imagine he might have the same question. What are you doing with the more you already have? Be a responsible steward for the blessings that you have. And those have, don't have to come in the form of treasure. The other two T's, time and talent. Sharing your time and talent with those less fortunate, eventually sharing your treasure like we do over in Haiti, can allow you to skip over happiness and land on, on joy. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to open up to the floor now. Unfortunately, we, we've lost internet connection at home, which is why Rich has dropped off. However, um, I, I, he's been managing the, what order the questions are coming in. However, I'm just going to go straight into a question that I can see here. And I'm going to bring up Dr. Peter, uh, if I can find you. There you go, Dr. Peter. I've asked you to unmute. So if you wouldn't mind coming up. This is Dr. Peter. Welcome. Yes, hello, Frank. Uh, where, met, where are you, Peter? We met uh, at JT's event uh, last time when it was live. Okay. Um, everyone talks about success, and uh, people say, yes, I want to um, achieve the same success. But uh, what people struggle with, what I see, is uh, when they encounter failure, they don't really know how to get out of that. And so they think that all these rich and successful people only had success in their life and might get frustrated. What could you please share one or two so-called failures of your of, from your life and how you dealt with them? How did you recover? I can give you one from the early years and then the more recent years. So the early years, um, 
in, in a you know the, the under hundred thousand dollar price point. Um, I got I, I felt like I got so good at what I was doing that I didn't have to go inspect the property, and and I bought I was buying these houses at auction, and I, I bought a piece of property that uh, I, I looked it up you know online. I saw it was I, I saw it was still there, um, but when I bid. I built, I bid, you know, 60% of what the value was. So let's say I bid up to 60 grand. There was no house there. The house had burnt down. I didn't take the time to go look to see if the house was still there. Just because there was an image on the computer that said it was there didn't mean it was there, you know, after that image was taken. So I bought a piece of land that was worth about 10 grand. Uh, so that taught me to, to never believe I'm any better than, you know, my successes got to my head. And then, and then if you fast forward to, to some of the, the, uh, the multi-million dollar houses that I did, um, I remember one that I did, I, I, I was on a roll again. I thought I, I let my success get to my head and I got a very good offer on a piece of property that I turned down thinking I was going to get more. Um, there's nothing wrong with stepping up to the plate and hitting a single. And I thought I was going to swing for the fences and get the home run there was a recession that came and that offer dissipated. And I ended up having to sell that property about a year later for about what I had into it. And I had turned down a profit of a million dollars because I got greedy and I got stupid and I got full of my, you know, thinking I walk on water and, and I can, I can sell this for a million dollar profit. So I, I, I no longer swing for the fences. I'm happy to make a single or a double. Uh, but those were two really hard lessons that cost me a lot of money. I guess a third one would be in 2010 when the market crashed. You know, I had a lot of I had a lot of property. We took a we we lost tens of millions of dollars in value of our, our properties. That was tough. That was really hard. And I didn't lose it all. Um, of course, I lost I lost a lot, but I didn't lose it all because I don't believe in debt. I mean, debt is a is the most obscene four letter word. You can say the F word and the S word around my house, but just don't say the D word because as a speculator, that'll blow you up. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Peter. Uh, I'm now going to bring up one of our London IMM members, uh, Victoria Ely. Welcome up, Victoria. Thanks, Nina. Hi, Frank. Um, we first heard you speak at Meg in 2019 as well, and we're completely blown away. Um, I just wanted to know, you were talking a lot about marketing and fireworks on the roof and that kind of thing. Did you ever list your um, houses that you began with on the MLS or did you always do your own marketing? Both. So I do, I believe in realtors. I use a realtor uh, on all of my transactions. Maybe at the very early stages, the under 100,000, I might not have. I could have sold some of those myself. But here's, here's, here's the process that I think would work for, for almost any investor. So at the highest level, uh, I do not want to alienate the brokerage community because those are the ones who are going to bring me the buyers. I have had three real estate brokers in the span of 25 years. I'm very loyal to my real estate brokers. I count on them and their expertise. So I, I list with Christie's or Sotheby's, you know, these big real estate firms that have a, a global reach. And I list with them. I count on them to bring me the buyer. Just as if you were in a, an art studio and you had an art broker that brought, brought, brought the buyer to Van Gogh or Renoir Monet, and then Van Gogh, Renoir Monet are there to explain the motivation behind the artistry. And that's how I work with my brokers. 
is I'm just as good a salesman, if not better than any real estate broker out there, because I'm the one who created the artistry. But I will not cut my nose off by trying to think I can sell these without the use of a broker. And I, I think the, you know, the brokers that I use, I, I love them. I'm loyal to the, as I said, three in 25 years, one of them died. So that really two, a two, I've only left one, I guess. And that was after 15 years. So, you know, that, that it's really important that you stay connected to, to your real estate brokers and use them. Fabulous. Thank you. And I'm going to be really cheeky um, and ask one more question, if that's right, Nina. Um, I have a space on the London Marathon in September and I'm planning an ultra next year to raise money for Dementia UK. Um, I know you spoke about mindset. I just wondered if you've got any kind of last minute tips to keep me moving. Yep. Here's the difference. So a marathon is a race. A marathon. So the London Marathon is a race. An ultra marathon is an effort of survival. So get rid of any, get rid of any ego be like I, I, I've helped a couple people. I can't say I'm a coach, but I, I've helped. I don't want, I don't have the time to be a real a running coach, but like I'm helping one guy now who, you know, I have him running a mile and a half and walking a half mile, running a mile and a half, walking. You can get to 20 miles like that. You do that sequence 10 times. You've gotten 20 miles. You're going to have to learn how to walk fast in an ultra marathon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Great question, Victoria. Thank you so much. And uh, Frank, thanks for keeping that, that going. Uh, before I bring up the next question, I, I have a couple for um, from myself. And so I hope you don't mind if I throw these at you. Um, I love the fact that you do spec houses. I, I think it's such a courageous thing uh, to, to do. And obviously, you've then got you really have got the artistic flair to go out and create something. Where did you get the ideas from to, to create these spec houses? Because I, they are way above and beyond anything else I've ever seen. And then have there been any points where you think, well, I'm so far in, I have to continue going, but there, has there been ever an element of doubt that you're, you're, you're going too far with them? And how do you overcome that? The first part of the question, most important part, and that is what do we do to awaken and enhance and then explode the right side of the brain, the creative side of the brain? So as I said, it took years, a decade almost to completely awaken that. I, um, so in South Florida, when I, when I was getting started, there, there was a famous architect by the name of, of Addison Meisner, and they, he built these Italian eight houses. And instead of going to look at his houses here in Florida that he designed back in the 20s and 30s, I went to Italy. I went to his source of inspiration. I went to the south of France, to the Loire Valley, and I went to where a lot of the great architects got their inspiration hundreds of years ago. And I would, I would go there and I, I, would, I would be inspired. I spent a lot of time in art galleries, uh, looking at other forms of art to allow the right side. Because I want, it's almost like the, if this was a soda can, it's almost like the sensation of popping that top off. That first fizz of explosion of art, artistic uh, inspiration is, is, is where then I quickly go to the left side and say, okay, these people have seen houses, beautiful houses all over the world. They've, they've experienced a life that I've never experienced. I have to provide them with a, almost like a private resort with rooms and, and features that they haven't ever experienced. So, you know, between the, the, the inspiration of going to these different countries, studying the architecture, going to art galleries. I'm also a photographer. So going out and taking, you know, uh, pictures of nature, there's something I'll see like the lava was a perfect example.
example. Like I, I felt that putting lava, and if you go to my website, you'll see this. I mean, it is, it's as smooth as this water bottle. It doesn't look like you know pumice uh, lava, but but that approach because you want to have people like you want to drop the blood pressure but raise the heart rate if that makes any sense so they walk in the door they're they're just taken aback but they're just so excited by what they see uh the jaws are dragging along the floor because at the highest level uh and, and i would say this would be the case with even the entry level nobody's gonna buy a house on oh honey that was kind of nice you get in the car and you go driving home that was, that was kind of nice, what, what Richard did in that house. No, I want him to love it or hate it. If you hate it, that's fine. Be on your way. But I want you to be intoxicated by it. And yes, the second part of your question, I have gone too far. There was a house I built uh, maybe five or six years ago. The, the, the entire four-year floor was made of glass. And underneath the glass was 18 inches of this crystal clear water. And on the bottom of the, the floor was painted this lotus garden motif. There were bubbles that were this bubble called bubble runs that were running through the bottom of the floor to kind of give you through a, a, more of a, a dimension on your walk. That went too far. Like people got uh, vertigo walking on that floor. It, and it also was like a museum. Like people were blown away, but they couldn't see themselves living there. You know, so that, that that's a case where I let the right brain get too far and I didn't put it through the, the business left brain, the, you know, the filter of is this going to make me a decent margin? Wonderful, thank you. And I, I love that point that you made. That so you've got to lower the blood pressure but raise the heart rate. There's um, there's, there's almost a juxtaposition there, but uh, brilliant. Uh, and that's going to sit firmly in my mind. Thank you so much. It works at every price point, Richard. And and that's where I, you know every you, your question was revolved around you know how do you become a real estate artist, and and that that's something that that. You know, Nina asked, that's the, what's the one thing that's going to set you apart? And it doesn't matter price point. You know, back when we were doing $100,000 houses, we were the first to put granite countertops in it and an under-counter coffee maker, you know, because nobody was putting those in those kind of houses. There's little touches like that that you can put in. Here's, here's a simple tip. Here's a real simple tip. If you're doing a $100,000 house or whatever your entry-level house is in your market, that entry-level house, and you have three bathrooms two bathrooms, whatever you go to that bathroom, you make sure that that this is detail. You make sure that toilet paper is brand new. The roll of toilet paper is brand new and you go online and look up ways to fold the end of a toilet paper to a perfect diamond tip point. And I learned because I stayed at some pretty nice hotels and I always noticed that when I went to the bathroom, the, the toilet paper was like, I stayed at the Ritz in Paris and that was that toilet paper fold was so, was so unique that I, I took the toilet paper off the roll and I took it home and I recreated how the maid folded that toilet paper. I'm not doing a good job here. I'm giving you the visual. Those little details cost you absolutely nothing. But if you pay attention to folding the toilet paper to a perfect diamond tip point and you pay attention to your mechanical rooms and you pay attention to your garages, those kind of things, people are going to assume you're going to do the master bedroom in the kitchen right but pay attention to those little kind of details and that what really will set you apart. That makes you that real estate artist, Richard. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Frank. And Frank, I'm going to bring up Lawrence, who's uh, been a regular guest of ours at uh, these, these events. He's got a great question to, uh, to ask. Okay. Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you, Richard. I saw you first, uh, Frank, uh, also mega success in 2019. And it was mostly your speech that I thought, 
this is fun, what he does, really inspirational. And that put me on the track of maybe doing something in real estate, but I don't know anything about it. I don't have any friends who do anything with it. I don't have... So my question was, what is the golden tip for somebody who has no experience, no knowledge yet, um, but who thinks he gets together? How do I, uh, what is the golden tip to start okay. in this business? Here's, if I had to start all over again, yeah, I just landed on the planet from a spaceship and I want to get into real estate. I would go to, this is not a, you know, not a plug for IMN, but I would go to either a place like IMN where you can network with the right kind of people, or are you, what, what country are you from? Netherlands. Netherlands. Okay, so the first thing I would do, and I don't know if they have them there, but they have a bunch of them in the United States, real estate investment clubs. Find Google real estate investment clubs in the Netherlands. There's gotta be them there. And then go to a meeting, it costs $20 or you know whatever it is, and sit in the back of the room don't buy anything because most of them try to sell you some kind of program. Sit there and listen for two or three consecutive meetings and network with people who are already doing real estate investment. You'll find out if you have money to invest, which it makes it a lot easier. I mean, investing with no money is a little tough. It can be done. And the best place to learn how to do it is at a real estate investment club or a place like IMN where you can network with other people who are into real estate who can tell you where the resources might be in the Netherlands. That's the first thing I would do. So I went to school, uh, not literally, but I went to school in the tennis court for all those years. And then before. I bought my first property, built a foreclosure on the courthouse steps. And I went and almost like playing Monopoly. I would sit there and imagine if I was putting my own money in um, what I would buy, what I would bid to and how much I would improve the property by and then after six months of role playing, I eventually bought my first piece. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, great question, Lawrence. Thank you so much. And uh, Frank, I'm going to bring up Julia. She's uh, um, an IMN. So find, be or get her. Oh, Frank, I think we've lost you now. Am I back? Yes, yeah. you are. Yes. Yes, Frank. Sorry, we, yep. we've, we've got you back. I'm back. Okay. Sorry, we just just lost the. Uh, you you were uh, just passing comments on the um, uh, uh, on on that last question. I think I was done with that. You got somebody else? You got a new, Sorry, new, yes, new so question? Yes, I'm bring up Julia. She's an IMN member. She's uh, um, she does some great stuff in real estate too. She converts beautiful old properties into uh, apartments and also builds really high-end luxury homes as well. Julia, you're on with Frank. Thanks very much, Richard. Uh, Frank, that was absolutely um, awesome. Some really great stuff in there. Uh, I did have an earlier question, which you then went straight on and asked. I was going to ask why you um, didn't hold property and rented it out. You just went to sale. But then you came straight back and you answered that in, in your presentation. So, uh, I have another one, and that's how long will your pro do your projects generally take to go from acquiring a site to the completion and the sale? Is that kind of a, a year? Is it two years? Do you have other sort of planning um, issues that we have over here, or can you more or less build anything? No, we we have all of those things. We it, it typically it typically from 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 I want to do another project to 
shovel in the ground to begin is three months of design and three months of permitting. So there's six, there's a half a year. And then typically I can build 1,000 square feet per month. So if I'm building a 12,000 square foot house, I should be able to get that done in a year. So there's 12, one year plus six months is a year and a half before it's done. Um, and then it might take anywhere from six days to six months to sell. So I think your two year reference is about on average with the average size of the house, with the average selling price is about how long it takes because of the permitting process, it, depending on the, right now it's a seller's market. It's, you know, the United States real estate's on fire. Uh, that, that takes a long, long time to get, get through. Yeah. Yeah. But I will tell you the quality of life, if you're, if you're doing high end, the quality of life. So I've done 44 projects. Sounds like a lot, but that was over a 28 year span. It's only a house and a half a year. So, you know, my quality of life, I pour everything I, I have into that three-dimensional creation uh, piece of art. And, and, and then I, you know, I move on, but it, it's allowed for me to live a, a really, you know, my, I was going kind of nuts doing 25, 30 little houses a year for those first five, five years of my life. I mean, it, my first five years of my career, that was hard. Tw 20 work crews and 20 light bills and 20 contractors aren't showing up. Now uh, it, it's, it's really just monomaniacal focus on one project or one and a half projects at a time. Yeah, so you tend to have one going through the first six month phase whilst you're completing and selling the, the other ones and that sort of thing. So you that's the average. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yes. presumably yes. because one of the reasons that we like to hold property and rent it is to give you that ongoing cash flow. Sure. You have to wait two years to get your lump of money that comes yep. in. Um, it's just so the way I'm wired. I'm, I'm very project specific in things in life. Like I like a beginning and I like an end. I, I, I just like to move on to, to, to the next, if it's going to be Italian or it's going to be Mediterranean, if it's going to be, you know, contemporary or Balinesian or Tahitian, uh, Key West. I like experimenting with different styles and, and, you know, in design. And so that, that part keeps me moving from one to the next, a start, a finish, and then a move, move on. But, but buying and holding is fantastic. I kind of wish maybe early in my career, I would have had a couple apartment buildings that would just pay me income. Because yes, I have to pay everybody for two years. I got to pay all my, you know, overhead, all my payroll, all my subcontractors, and then I hope that I get that one big payday. Yeah, because it's it's managing all that cash flow right the way through the process, and you you yes. said you didn't like the D word. Yes. But but actually, how do you manage that if you well, don't have the little bit of D? I do have D. I do have a little D. I just don't. I don't go crazy. So my 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 my, my loan to value might be sixty percent. Very rarely would I go over 60%. So, you know, and, and when you're putting up 40% or 35% of your own money, you can dictate terms to the bank. The, the, the terms that I get are, the money's almost free. You know, yeah. it might be, it might be LIBOR minus or, or prime minus when I'm paying 2% two, 2 or 3% for my money. That's responsible D. <laughs> I appreciate you not saying the word. Um, but but I, I also know what it's like to be caught with, with debt and have a market correct like it did in 2010, 35%. So had I borrowed too much money back then, I would have blown up. I would have lost all my property. Instead, I had to sell a lot of it at, at cost, what I had into it. I didn't make any money, but I didn't, I didn't go bankrupt either. Thank you very much. The key, isn't it? And, and great, great question, Julia. Thank you so much 
Frank, I'm going to pick up on a point that Julia asked about and, and um, create another question, if I may. And that's about um, land acquisition. You, you're operating in a finite space. You've got the, sort of the, the linear plot of land in front of the seafront that's obviously the prime point for, for you. And that's really where your, your, your business is at. How do you acquire new sites? And how long might that take to, to get from a point of saying, right, okay, there's there's a property that might work for me. How do you go about acquiring that, please? So the, here's, the, here's the advantage of, of carving your niche a little deeper and a little wider than most, basically becoming an expert in a very small swath of land. Um, people, so, so the, the, the land on the ocean renders the physical structure functionally economically and physically obsolete after a period of time. Oftentimes the, the structures that are on the properties that I buy are worthless, yet they've been in a family for 25 years. So the, the, the older generation passes on, they, they, they die or they go into a, a retirement home and, and the property is left to their heirs. And, and, and let's say the property is worth, you know, the, 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 just the dirt or the sand itself, the lot is worth $5 million they will call me because they know that's what I do and they don't want to deal with brokers. They might call me and say, Frank, you know, my, my father left me this property. Um, would you like to buy it? And, and I, uh, you know, if I'm in the market, yes, I do. And maybe I'm offering them 4 million. They haven't bothered to call a broker. They don't want to go through the hassle. I tell them they could probably make more if they went through all the hassle. And they, they don't like they'll, they'll just assume to sell it to me. Uh, and believe me, $4 million inherited is, is a lot of money because the basis in the property is very low. So I, I kind of have that ear to the ground, if you will. There's 156 direct. Oceanfront properties in Palm Beach County for over 25 years. That physical and functional obsolescence is taking place while I'm in the market. Oh, did you lose me again? No, you, you're with us. It's okay, Frank. You're with us. Okay. So, 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 typically, a, a life a, a, a life cycle of a property is about 20 years. Matter of fact, one of the first houses I did back in the late 90s, like my third or fourth one, fourth one, it was a 25,000 square foot house. Just got torn down because the physical, the property underneath it rendered the physical structure obsolete. From an economic and, and physical standpoint, so it's still it's still a vacant lot. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Twenty years later, so knowing that that cycle, that life cycle, is always occurring, and knowing that I've got my ear to the ground, and people will call, uh, or I'll keep my eye on. Frank, I think we might have lost you. My apologies, everyone. Something that might look like it's... <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, I, it seems that we've had a technological nightmare this evening. I think we have just lost... Um, Frank, um, hopefully he can yeah. come back in. There we go. Ah, Frank, hello again. 
Wow, I was just getting it ready to go get to the good part, right? The secret, the secret I'm sauce. So sorry. Um, acquisition basis plus improvement basis should rarely equal more than 65% of retail. So simple math, if you're doing a million dollar property, you should rarely have more than $650,000 into the deal. Now, there are exceptions, of course. Like right now in the, in the United States, especially in South Florida, you might have to go to 70% because it's an absolute seller's market. But for the most part, that formula that I have adhered to has served me very well. It's brilliant, thank you. And um, Frank, my apologies about the, the technical issues there. Uh, I'm very, very mindful of time as well. And we did have another uh, couple of questions, but um, yep. do, do you have a bit more, just maybe five five minutes or more before we, we sure. wrap up? Yeah, thank absolutely. You. So, so much. I'd love to hear from more people. That, that's very kind, thank you. I'm gonna bring up um, Maria. Uh, she's been um, putting some questions in, into the, uh, the chat box. So Ma Maria, if you like to unmute yourself, you, you're wrong with Frank. Hello, great to see you again, Frank. Hi, Maria. I'm gonna visit Hunter as soon as I can travel and maybe we will come join you. Good, Hunter's not too far away from me. I know. So I was thinking about, you were talking about um, the relationships you were building with people to find the, the great lots and you know finding that because everything is about relationship uh, in life and in business. And when you're doing your project, are you doing them totally yourself or do you go into partnership with people? I am not a good partner person. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not going to discourage you from being a partner, but I'm gonna give you a metaphor, a visual. Partnerships are supposed to be like the rails of a railroad track, meaning they're supposed to, one rail contributes an equal amount, the other rail contributes an equal amount, and they go perfectly down into the horizon. When one rail is off just slightly, what happens to the train that's riding on it? It's a disaster. It's a train wreck. So you have to be very, you have to be hyper careful of who you go into partnerships with because most of them do end up in train wrecks. Now, my mentor, who, who was my mentor for 20 years, who just, who just passed away at the age of 91, Rich DeVos, the co-founder of Amway, um, he had a partner for 60 years worked great for him but i realized that i'm not the best partner person um i you know i don't need your money I, i'd rather use money with no strings attached like bank money all i need to do is pay them back on time they're they're not poking around picking paint colors or coming around the project with their hands in their pockets like pretending like they have something to do with it i, I just am not a good partner person and i know that flies in the face of, of what a lot of people do and i'm not discouraging you from it but but be be very careful who you go into partnership with and have an exit strategy and, and make sure that, that what you're contributing to the partnership is equal to, and this is the hard part, not greater than and not less than, but equal to in value, the way each other values what you're bringing to the partnership. That will give you the best chance of success. But if you can control your own destiny and you don't have to answer to a partner, you can do your own thing. I, I don't know. For me, it's, it's I have done partnerships. I have, and um, they haven't ended well. So I, I've kind of learned my lesson and I, I'm better off on my own. That's so interesting. Yeah. I've been in partnership too, and both uh, that went you know, well and not so well. 
And something I just urge everybody to do is make sure to have solid contracts in place. As a lawyer, that's, I urge everybody to think about this when you go into partnership, have everything in writing and protect yourself. Thank you so much. Maria, thank you. Wonderful question. And Frank, uh, equally wonderful answer. The, the advice you've shared there, I think, goes a long way for, for many people uh, this, the, on, on this uh, event. There's lots of people that do property. And I know there's lots of people that um, believe that the way forward is partnership. So it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant bit of advice. Thank you so much. I, um, I, I, I Before I start wrapping up, I have a, a, another question for you. And you've mentioned a couple of times about coaches and mentors. Um, how important is it for people, both in business or when you're looking to achieve something new and fresh in your life, how important is a coach or a mentor? Well, I mean, if it wasn't for the mentors that I had early on that tennis court, who they were mentors. I mean, they, it was before mentors was a big deal. Um, I never would have gotten into real estate had I not had my true mentor for, for, for the 20 years in Rich DeVos that I did. There wouldn't be 12,800 kids that were living now in Haiti that would have died because they're eating dirt. You know, so that's, it's so critical to have a mentor. And a mentor, typically, my, my, my definition of a mentor is somebody who gives you advice for free. A coach, you got to pay. And you're going to get what you pay for. So a mentor, you can get a mentor I mean, this is what I find hard to understand. You can get a mentor in a book. Like everything I know in mindset is going to be in this book. Everything I know in real estate is in my book, Burst This, Frank McKinney's Bubble Proof Real Estate Strategies. This is $30 or $25. You know, that's where you start. And then, and then reach out to people. And, and, and if you, you have a coaching budget, then hire a coach to coach you. Mentors, what I have found, and this is how I got one for 20 years, um, I simply, I, I don't ask too much. I ask for one thing, one question, and then I leave for a while. I don't, I don't, I just respect time so much. My time is not worth any more than yours. Yours isn't worth any more than mine. I don't care how successful you are. Our time has equal value. And, and, and recognizing that in your mentor and not just because we wake up with a limited amount of energy every day, Richard. I am, I'm giving energy right now, which is great, but I can't do that all day, every day. I have to find people to put energy back to me or else I burn out. And so a, a good mentor relationship will have that, a good mentor relationship. Now, if you're, you're hiring a coach, that coach is primarily putting out because he's, he or she's getting paid, but, but be mindful of the mentor's time and, and you'll have a, you could have a very successful relationship with a mentor. That's fantastic. Thank, thank you so much, Frank. And it leads me round to what was uh, going to be my next question anyhow. Uh, your book, uh, it's on your website. Is it, um, does it deliver worldwide? And um, if so, can people go to, to your website and order it? I would, I would strongly encourage you to go to, um, just go, to, go direct to the website for the book, which is The Aspire Book. So it's just the word theaspirebook.com theaspirebook.com uh, there you can you can see a pretty cool trailer that that nina was talking about how, how we we make like movie trailers for our books and we make trailers for our houses and all um yes it delivers internationally uh, it will be out later this summer the cool thing about it is for every book that we, you pre-order because it's not going to be out you know for for a while we've sold over 4,500 pre-orders in 19 countries 
you're providing 200 meals in one of our orphanages. You're providing one child who was eating that mud patty flavored with bouillon and lemon juice with 200 meals. I make no money for my books. All proceeds go to our Caring House Project Foundation. So if you go to the aspirebook.com, you can read about it. There's, there's a sample chapter. There's an outline on there. Um, there's that video you want to watch. And then pre-order a bunch of copies. Now, if you happen to pre-order 50 or more, if you can get your way to the United States, you can spend an hour in my treehouse where I'm at today. Uh, and, and I know it's tough for you overseas, but we've, we've done a bunch of 50, 50 book pre-orders. You can give them out to friends and you can spend an hour up in the treehouse. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, I've put the links into the chat function for everyone to click on. And I've also put the link to the Caring House uh, project. It's such a wonderful, wonderful charity. When we first heard you talk, Nina and I were just compelled to, to get involved. And uh, it's just wonderful to see the things that you do for the people that need the help so much. So thank oh, you for- tell me, again, Richard, tell me again, Richard, how much you, you and Nina donated, didn't you? Yes, yes, we, we, um, we actually donated for you to build an actual house for, for eight people. That's what uh, I thought. So let me, let me spend a minute on that. I, I, I wasn't sure if it was a half a house or a whole house. So Nina and Richard donated $4,800 to build an entire brand new concrete house for a family of eight that was living in a mud shack, you know, with a palm fronds for a roof. Think about that. A whole, a, I can build a house for a family of eight, which is typically six children and two parents or five children, a grandparent, and two parents for 4,800 bucks. So if Richard put a link into the, the chat section, C-H-P-F, C is in Charlie, H is in house, P is in Paul, F is in Frank, chpf.org. And at the top of that page, there are six of the most frequently used donations. There's 78 total, but I put up the top six. $20 provides 20 bricks in our next village. Uh, 100 bucks provides the door, 250 bucks by, provides the, the roofing material, and so on and so forth, all the way up to 4,800 like Richard did. So I would appreciate it if you would go to that chpf.org, if you're not going to buy 50 books, um, and donate. And if it's 20 bucks or if it's like Richard and Nina donated 4,800 bucks, it's pretty powerful knowing that you can build a whole house or a half a house or provide 20 bricks. Because in business, you know, in business, we have an ROI, return on investment. In the, as a business of charity, we coined the phrase ROD, return on donation. How far can I stretch my donor's dollar, your dollar, in terms of impact in Haiti? And 4800 bucks for a family of eight for a brand new concrete house is pretty impactful. So I hope that you will do as Richard and Nina did, is go to chpf.org and, and donate a house or donate a half a house or donate some bricks. It, it's such a wonderful foundation. And it's uh, delivered in with such passion and you've achieved so much. It's truly, truly wonderful. Frank, Thank you. Frank that, that sort of brings us um, uh, to the end. I'm very mindful we've run over. I'm so very grateful for the additional time that you, you've given us. Uh, I also want to congratulate you for its 35th anniversary. And I'm sorry it's taken me to, to now to mention that. We're honored to have you on your 35th anniversary. What a true milestone. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, it's big. I celebrate, don't tell my wife, but I celebrate this anniversary almost as much or more than I do my wedding anniversary. And we've been married, it'll be 31 years this year. Um, yeah, it's, it was, it's been a great ride. I'm telling you guys, real estate is the, is the way. And, and again, it's, it's not just a way to that first million or first 10 million or first 100 million. It is, it is the path to enlightenment, it is the path to purpose. 
and if you want to make the impact in the world, like I feel my legacy is not going to be these multi-million dollar houses. So 10 years ago, to the answer to the question that I posed to you, what legacy do you aspire to leave behind? I wanted to be a real estate artist and be known as this real estate artist. That's not going to be it. It's going to be what we're doing in Haiti, generation, generationally impacting those children and their families. So that's the kind of thing that real estate is the tool, is the conduit for being able to do that, to dovetail that professional and that spiritual highest calling. And I just implore you to, 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 to see the, the real estate and see business as a way to do that. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I want to take this moment as well to uh, not just thank you, but uh, firstly to, to thank Hunter for um, introducing us to you personally and also to JT Fox for um, having you speak at his event back in 2019. Without that, we would never have met and I wouldn't have had so much fun this evening, but, but also in, enjoying seeing all the amazing things you do. So thank you to them. But Frank, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's, um, it's truly our pleasure and we're very honoured to have you on, um, on our event. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about what we do or to get to know us, please visit inspiredequity.com. Join us on our next show for more interactive property discussions. Until then, I wish you good health and continued success. Go out there and be inspired.